the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, powers of two to the logarithmic extreme of entertainment. Icker from hell and liquor from a star drive still. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part two of a two-part interview with two-time World Fantasy Award-winning author Tim Powers talking about his wonderful new contemporary fantasy adventure novel, Alternate Routes. This is a fun book with Tim's amazing conception of ghosts that follow their own mad logic and always stick to it, which is the only way our hero can defeat them in the end, if he can. And it's all set in Tim Powers' own magical stomping ground, the weird parts of the Los Angeles Basin, as Tim conceives them, and they are really weird and cool. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. We have two new eARCs available for August. Now an eARC is the curve a golf ball takes when driven on the moon and then gobbled up by one of those giant blind dust worms which the astronauts failed to inform the public about. Uh, no, no, no. An eARC is not that. An eARC is an advanced electronic reading copy of a book, which is which is an ebook that you can buy way before the book comes out. If you love a particular series or a particular character, or if you want to try something new, you can get it before it is out. You can get it usually three months before it's out. These are November print books that are out now in August. This month, in eart form, we have a new novel in John Ringo's Black Tide Rising series. This is The Valley of Shadows by John Ringo and Mike Massa. From his corner office on the 44th floor of the Bank of the Americas Tower on Wall Street, Tom Smith, Global Managing Director for Security, could see the Statue of Liberty, Battery Park, and a ravening zombie horde. Good thing Smith, late of the Australian Special Forces, isn't the man to give up easily. But saving civilization is going to take more than the traditional banking toolbox of lawyers, guns, and money. It's going to take a guy with Smith's latent capabilities. Also in eARC right now is A Pillar of Fire by Night by Tom Kratman. This is part of Tom's Carrera series and the sequel to The Rods and the Axe. Carrera's held off his enemies coming by sea from the north, in the process dealing the navy and the amphibious forces of the Zong Empire a stinging defeat. Now, though, his adopted country of Balboa is under assault from the east, from the south, from the west, from the air, and from space. It's beginning to look like the game is up for Balboa and Patricio Carrera. But Carrera's been planning this war for 15 years. He certainly hopes his enemies think that they're winning. The Valley of Shadows by John Ringo and Mike Massa. And A Pillar of Fire by Night, eARCs, are now available exclusively at Bain eBooks. Go to Bain.com and check them out. This is part two of a two-part interview with Tim Powers discussing alternate routes. Part one is available on last week's podcast. want to welcome Tim Powers to the podcast. Hello, Tim. Hello. Glad to be here. Tim Powers won the World Fantasy Award twice for his critically acclaimed novels, Last Call and Declare. Declare also received the International Horror Guild Award. His novel on Stranger Tides was fun, and Tim also won a couple of Philip K. Dick Awards. was sold to Disney for the movie franchise installment, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. His book, The Anubis Case, won the Philip K. Dick Award, and it's considered a modern science fiction classic and a progenitor of the steampunk genre, which I totally agree with. Tim won the Dick Award again for straight science fiction post-apocalypse novel dinner at Deviant's Palace. Bain recently published Down and Out in Purgatory, the collected stories of Tim Powers, and that book now is a World Fantasy Award finalist. We'll find out right. later what what happens with that. Knockwood. Yeah, coming out, I believe it's next... Did we put it in spring? I think we did. Uh, it's going to be the mass market of that as well. So 
We have that to look forward to. Out last month was a new edition of Expiration Date, which is part of Tim's Faultline trilogy, right? Yeah. Yes. And upcoming will be our earthquake weather uh, in the fall. But out now, we have a new Tim Powers hardcover out called Alternate Routes. This is an all-new book. It's cool, creepy, super fun, action-filled, supernatural adventure novel by Tim. Tim Powers grew up in Southern California, still resides there with his wife, Serena. So I always pictured ghosts as being these kind of uh, revenant apparitions who think they're the person they're a ghost of, but in fact are these semi-imbecilic cast-off snakeskins, which yeah. living people can a, find uh, useful. Locust. Yeah. I saw a cicada uh, uh, yeah. skin yesterday, and it kind of reminded me of the, one of your ghosts in a way. Yeah, if you picture that cicada skin getting up and starting to crawl around and imagining that it is the original cicada, <laughs> that would be it. And, of course, living people find it useful to conjure these poor creatures um, because they have no discretion. The ghosts don't. A secret the living person kept all his life, the ghost might just uh, unthinkingly babble out because the ghost really will have virtually all of the living person's memories cast off in that sort of, as I say, ROM form, read-only memory. One of them, uh, and they could be dangerous as well, because one of them almost uh, are are sort of a monstrous being from this world of of expanded possibility they inhabit, uh, almost gets uh, Vickery with a big yucky tongue. Yeah, uh, you don't want to speak to them in complete sentences because that lets them get a fix on you. And in their idiot way, they can, by means of shooting their tongue out at you like in a, what, a chameleon or something, they can at least momentarily reverse places with you. So it's them looking out of your eyes, and you're in this ephemeral form uh, which is the, the ghost's form. Uh, and so at the Transportation Utility Agency, when they're inter- interviewing, uh, interrogating ghosts, they have three guys, each of whom reads one word of a sentence in sequence so that the ghost doesn't have a chance to fix on any specific person. But in a crisis, our man Vickery does speak to a ghost in complete sentences, and if it wasn't for the intervention of the woman accompanying him, uh, God knows what might have happened to him. He might have disappeared with the ghost's form, and the ghost would have kept on inhabiting Vickery's form. Uh, interestingly, she attacks it with uh, with uh, math. Right. <laughs> yeah, ghosts, because bullets uh, won't work, of course. Yeah, bullets would be no good. Um, but ghosts are a consequence, an effect of expanded indeterminism, so that in the current, in the field, things are possible which are not quite possible in normal life. For example, if you have a string hanging over a quantity of water in a jar, but the string isn't quite touching the water, it'll still get wet because the water drops will arc up to the string, uh, which isn't possible in normal life. But in the expanded possibility field, things like that do happen. And because they're the opposite of our determinist Newtonian uh, normal life, they can be repelled by mathematics. You can say 7 and 7 is 14, minus 4 is 10, and especially if you can enact it by holding up fingers or something, uh, the ghost will be repelled by this empirical enactment of determinism. So, yeah, if you're ever cornered by a ghost, try reciting the multiplication tables. Uh, if I'm right, that will <laughs> drive him away. And then after the ghost eats my soul, I'll be like, well, Tim Powers said. 
Terracotta. I'm going to get back to powers on this. <laughs> That's right. I'm going after it. Terracotta, uh, who is who is one of the bad guys uh, and, and our immediate uh, bad guy at the, near the start, um, he is an interesting fish. He, The way you describe him, and one of the things is he really likes this Tennyson verse, um, let the great world spin down the ringing grooves of change. Right. Which he equates with, with determinism, and, and he is uh, he thinks it's, a, it's an illusion, uh, any kind of free will. Um, <laughs> right. Kind of kind of reminds me, and, and he's, he's sort of like a, one of these vicious atheists that 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 want everyone to <laughs> understand that that there ain't no free will. Right. Yeah. A real uh, materialist atheist has no room in his philosophy for the idea that we have free will, that a person can choose freely to have a beer or, on the other hand, have a Coke. The atheist materialist would say the one he chooses as, is as inevitable as which way a rock rolls in an avalanche. The rock might imagine it has free will to choose to go left or right, but of course it's all just physics. And, um, yeah, a real atheist has no choice but to say uh, your business partner embezzling all the company's money is no more something that you can blame anybody for than if a wasp stings you or a brick brick falls off a building in an earthquake and breaks your arm. It's all just physics. And, uh, in fact... Bertrand Russell states this very clearly in a book called Religion and Science. He says that the idea that anything that goes on in our minds has any connection with anything our body does is purely a delusion. Of course, according to him, he would he would say he had no choice but to say that. I always want to uh... throw a cup of coffee in his face and say, hey, don't blame me. It's <laughs> just right. physics, man. Blame the Big Bang. That's, That's just where it the all tune being played on my ukulele. <laughs> yeah. In fact, uh, yep. according to that point of view, the Big Bang is the ultimate author of Shakespeare's sonnets, which makes it a very well, literate I, Big Bang. Yeah. <laughs> well, the uh, Terracotta, the way you you describe him, and the way that he he he's because he believes in nothing and has sort of a void for a soul, it, it, it's opened him up for some rather nasty things to uh, to to get inside of him. He, yeah. he reminds me of one of the the men from uh, the the C.S. Lewis uh, book, The Hideous Strength, or that yes. Hideous Strength. That guy uh-huh. Frost, who simply watches himself do things. Yeah, I, I'm sure I derived terracotta very largely from specifically that hideous strength, which is a book I reread all the time. Well, tell us some more about Terracotta's uh, project, as much as we can know about it, to to, not give too much away about the book. Having, as you noted, sort of emptied his mind, uh, he finds that um, what happens is the reverse of what Friedrich Nietzsche said. So what Terracotta thinks is, if the abyss stares into you long enough, you will look back and return its gaze. You will look into the abyss. And what finally winds up looking into him is, without giving too much away, a sort of chaotic, indeterminist force which first showed up in Crete, in uh, the Mediterranean, in the Aegean Sea. In about, I think, as I recall, about 4000 B.C., specifically, in fact, when King Minos refused to sacrifice the beautiful bull that Zeus gave him, uh, which Minos should have known better. I mean, if the gods tell you to sacrifice this here bull, you really should know enough that you're supposed to do it. But Minos did not, and because of that, this force of expanded possibility, indeterminist chaos came into existence, and Terracotta's researches and the goal of his sort of hijacked identity is to um, reestablish 
a connection with that force and um, let it pursue its own goals. And the connection that has been made is with the freeways. Well, yeah, the connection is that the Daedalus's maze at Knossos in Crete is beginning to, in certain important spiritual ways, become identical with the Los Angeles freeways, or else vice versa. The freeways are, in important ways, becoming identical with certain core aspects of the, the labyrinth. This is being fostered by Terracotta's efforts, and it turns out that the two state, two conditions, two situations, the labyrinth on the one hand and our normal world on the other, are approaching one another and being attracted to one another by a force, and the force-carrying particles are ghosts being exchanged back and forth just as gravity works by the exchange of gravitons and electromagnetism and works by the exchange of virtual photons. Um, in this case, the attraction is being accomplished by the exchange of ghosts back and forth from this world to the afterworld and back, and the exchange of these force-carrying particles is making the two worlds more and more rapidly approach actual overlap. Which, and this would not be a good thing. <laughs> it would be very bad. In fact, uh, it was very bad for Crete when they built a duplicate of the Daedalus's labyrinth on Thera. And those two began to become, in these supernatural ways, too identical. And, of course, as everybody knows, what happened was Thera blew up. And it ended the uh, uh, Mycenaean Empire so that the Persians took over. Anyway, it was the end of uh, that whole Cretan empire when Thera blew up. And that looks now likely to happen to Los Angeles if, if this is not stopped. So we've got, we've got some high stakes here, and not just the, uh, the TUA being after Sebastian. Sebastian has to, if he, if he can, affect this, try to stop it, right? That's... Yeah, and like I always think a lot of my protagonists, he really would rather not. <laughs> he, he really would rather that, I don't know, the NSA take care of this or the FBI. Uh, how is it my job? But he finds that there's no way out. It's him or nobody. And, of course, he briefly thinks, well, how about nobody? I'll go to Barstow. I'll come back when it's all over. But he finds that he is not able to make himself do that. With a little help from the, the, the woman accompanying him, she kind of nudges his conscience a bit. Yeah. And um, the thing that he overhears is, uh, is, a pass is a portion of a passage from Ovid, which you quote oh, in the yes. book. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful little piece of, I guess you used uh, Dryden's translation of, Yes. Uh, yeah, it's about the labyrinth. And it, the idea that Minot was trying to, well, I guess it's Daedalus, the new arts his cunning thought applies, the nature, the work of nature tries. That that's sort of the the idea that you can make the world better by your by your vision of, yeah, of things yeah. rather than yeah, letting Daedalus, things. Yeah, Daedalus is always called the artificer, um, always inventing things such as wings, of course, which didn't work out so well for his son. And, yeah, the passage from Ovid is specifically about Daedalus, the labyrinth, Daedalus's escape from the labyrinth, and it winds up being too specific for Terracotta to want people to associate with his enterprise. It turns out that these quotations from the Dryden translation of Ovid Metamorphoses is emanating from that other world, other state, other situation, the labyrinth. And so Terracotta yeah. needs to squelch any suspicion that there's supernatural stuff going on which can arguably be described in that passage of Ovid. And so that, yeah. that, that, that section from Ovid becomes kind of the equivalent in the story of uh, Lovecraft's Necronomicon, uh, Secrets Which Must Not Be Known. I mean, only in a Tim Powers novel can we find a stretch from Ovid 
and then you know secret save you know guys with guns chasing each other around hit teams ingrid is is an agent with uh, she's still a secret service agent uh, of a of that tua branch and she what is her weapon she's got a six hour what what's her uh, her firearm that she's got that Oh yeah, uh, that's right. A uh, Sig Sauer. I don't remember the number, but it's a standard Secret Service sidearm. Um, and at one point, she has to give it up because uh, a sort of ghostmonger type, uh, in order to help them, says, "I want your gun because it very recently participated in killing somebody, and a weapon that has." recently and in the freeway field participated in somebody's death is a is a kind of a powerful object and she's worried uh but it's registered to me and our hero has to tell her you know you've got bigger problems right now <laughs> than worrying about your gun being in effect stolen and when the ghost monger says well i have a couple of 45s you can have in exchange uh she says but but you can't just transfer ownership without, you know, going through legal channels. And our hero says, we are well past that kind of problem. But, yeah, it's handy for the story that both she and Vickery have had law enforcement training. In fact, as a Secret Service agent, Vickery has had very deep, you know, extensive, repeated training. I was uh, awed in my research to find thoroughness and extent of, of the training Secret Service guys go through. There's another, there's a couple of, you mentioned the, the supernatural object ghostmonger dude, uh, Hipple, who's right. a very interesting fellow. And, and there's kind of a, one of these, one of these Joker characters that comes out of, of the weirdness of the world, Isaac Liquidatum. Oh, yes. Tell, yeah. You can tell he, a little bit about him, but he's pretty cool. Yeah, he, um has taken the name Isaac Laquatum, which is traditionally the name of the wandering Jew, who right. is supposed to be about 2,000 years old now. He isn't that guy, but he took the name of that folklore figure because he is Jewish and at least is a couple hundred years old. And he, if I'm not giving too much away, was in 1960 responsible for the the the... The conduit, the crack, the uh, the break in reality that eventually permitted the labyrinth to begin to approach our real world, and he well, he's the guy that that he's the the legendary guy who went to the other side and came back. Yeah, he went and came back. Yeah, he drove a car in a particularly funny way on the freeway and found himself driving straight into the labyrinth and managed to get back, the only guy at that point who ever had. And in doing that, he broke the gate, which these many years later, Terracotta is using. Um, but because he's been there and back, he knows how to get there and back. And Vickery eventually finds this very crucial knowledge. And and, and the way that he dresses is, is interesting as well. Yeah, to... yeah. Well, I posit that if you have ghosts who are tracking you, attracted to you, trying to find you, it helps to get rid of or conceal any aspects of yourself that are recognizable. Therefore, you should wear used shoes and not wear them long enough for them to be identifiable with yourself, not long enough to pick up your own sort of psychic scent. And you should wear your watch on the other wrist set to a wrong time. And you should wear your shirt backwards with the buttons behind. And comb your hair on the other side. Uh, and Laquatum is using all these ghost evasion measures. So, yeah, his shirt is on backwards. His pants are on backwards. And presumably every couple of days he goes and buys a new fresh pair of used shoes so that any ghosts who are looking for him won't be able to get a fix on him. It's so awesome. if you see a homeless guy, logical, uh, really. <laughs> wandering, 
Yeah, it seems completely logical. Yeah. <laughs> the place where they eat in the book, it, this row of Victorian houses that is faced by, like, yeah. a, is that real or is that? Well, there's a lot of that. You see, a, you see a funny little, you know, tropical fish store or, you know, vacuum cleaner store. And if you look, you see it's been added onto the front of an old Victorian house. And I've always thought, where's the port? There must be a one-time front porch in there, you know, between the old house and the new business. It's always, it's always. It's kind of that. Go ahead. That sort of weird uh, amalgam that that creates a, a confusion for the ghosts, so that they can actually uh, like eat like in pieces. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, you do see that uh, not just in L.A. You see that in Orange County, and and sometimes you have to, as I had in the book, you have to go around the back to see. Oh, look, there's a house actually attached to that thing. In fact, the thing is attached to the house, and I don't know of any such restaurant as what they find there. But I think it'd be kind of cool. <laughs> I would I would love to go to a place like that. Are there waiters, or what does she say? Can you order? They they bring the food. They bring- they bring you whatever's on the stove. By the way, I just found I because Bane readers will care. Um they re recognize the uh the gun that uh casting or casting has as a six hour. D two two nine, probably uh forty caliber. It's the uh, forty caliber, I remember that. What was it? Two twenty nine, yeah. Yeah. And then later they've got a couple of forty five ACP, presumably what, seven round magazine and one in the chamber. Called 1911s. I love the 1911. Very simple, perfect machine. I agree. I got one for my grandfather. So it's probably ghost-ridden itself. <laughs> oh, maybe your yeah, grandfather was a real colorful guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he was. Tells me, oh, get get a get a Glock. And I think I'm I'm more old school. I'm I'm kind of a traditionalist myself. Yeah. Well, what is um what are you working on now? Is there a sequel to this? Does actually do yeah. we go on with? Yeah. Um. Yeah. What I'm working on now, I'm about third or so of the way done. Um. Is in fact a sequel to Alternate Roots. Um. Alternate Roots ends with a sort of peripheral observation which in this book is taken up. And this book has to do with something Cecil B. DeMille did in the 1920s, which struck me as having a kind of a supernatural motive behind the ostensible mundane motive. And it's turning out to have consequences in present-day Los Angeles and because of a logical consequence of what happened in Alternate Roots, Vickery and Castine are again thrown together and find that they have to participate, and it's not an option to just, like, change your name and leave the state. Yeah, and this is everything. This is present-day stuff. Oftentimes, you will uh, go back into the past with some of your stories. It seems like you always go to L.A. when you do present. I guess that's not always the case. But, uh, no, I think it's always, except for maybe a short story or two. Well, yeah, if I'm not doing historical, which might, of course, be you know, London, Beirut, Moscow, anything, I do, my my personal compass points straight to L.A. L.A. is my favorite city. I think anybody can fall in love with San Francisco or New Orleans in 10 minutes. You think, that's cheap, but... <laughs> L.A., well, you kind of got to get acquainted a little bit. And and it does, it does just offer so much variety. The, I kind of start with about 1900, uh, though it, you could take it maybe 100 years earlier. But I like starting with about the time the movies came to L.A. Because then, it, for one thing, there was a lot of money, so there was a lot of self-indulgence. A lot of that was occult interest. Again, because of a whole lot of money and power, there were a lot of murders and blackmails and changed identities and inadequate explanations. You get people like, oh, Ala Nazimova, one of the movie queens from the 20s who had a very curious supernatural implying past it uh, it's a bottomless well its history is just littered with weird looking unexplained stuff and you um 
unlike you know a lot of writers who migrate out there because of the, of the movies or whatever. I mean, this is your native turf in a way, although you were yeah, you were here. born in uh, New since, York. Yeah, I've been here since 1959, so I'm not a native, but I've been a Angelino for longer than most natives. <laughs> to the extent that I can claim to be an Angelino living in San Bernardino. Still, it's only an hour away. It's all just interconnected. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As yeah, I remember. You, yeah, take a hammer out and rap on the freeway near our house, and you, you'd be able to hear it all the way out to Westwood, you know, psychically. Yeah. <laughs> and you certainly would in alternate routes, alternate routes <laughs> by Tim Powers. Whichever. We, so the book, we just have to spell it. We yeah. don't have to pronounce it. Yeah. Well, the book is Alternate Roots by Tim Powers, now at booksellers everywhere. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for being with us again and, and talking about this great, fun, incredible supernatural uh, book that, that manages to somehow bring Ovid, uh, Modern Firearms, The Wandering Jew, and, and L.A. together into into the, an amazing uh, gestalt that makes sense and is so much fun to read. I'm I'm glad you say it makes sense. I always hope it does. And thank you. It's been fun. This was part two of a two-part interview with Tim Powers discussing alternate routes. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers, no one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 3 Five years ago. The massive funeral pyre burned so hot that they could feel the warmth even from their distant vantage point. The orange pillar lit the night sky. The tower of smoke blotted out the moons and stars. Their duty satisfied, the small group of protectors stood on the hillside and watched the bodies burn. It was rare to have so many members of the order in a single place at the same time, but the capital saw full-blown house wars as serious events, requiring a swift, merciless dispensation of justice. Their battle had lasted a few hours of the morning. It had taken a huge crew of untouchables the rest of the afternoon to gather up all the dead the protectors had left in their wake in order to build that fire. Of course, their instructor took this moment as a teaching opportunity. Since there is nothing beyond this life, why are we required to give respect to the remains of our dead? Mindarin asked his students. It was a rhetorical question, but the inexperienced members of the order were used to Mindarin constantly asking them questions. Mindarin was known as the philosophical scholarly leader. Questions and reasoning were his method of teaching. He applied logic to the law so that there could be no misunderstanding its principles. Most of the acolytes found his way preferable to Master Ratul's method of severe beatings and long runs in full armor. Ashok listened, distracted, as the young men rattled off the expected answers. 
It was tradition to appease the houses, or it was to prevent enemies from defiling the corpses as an insult, which would lead to more strife between families, or even such practical matters as preventing the spread of disease. But because the law requires it, was the primary response. Within the order, because the law requires it, was a safe answer to nearly every question. The law had required him to kill a lot of people today. Your answers are acceptable, as was your performance here, Mindarin told the students. It was as close to a compliment as most of them had ever received from someone of his status. Return to camp and rest, for tomorrow will bring new duties for us all. Ashok watched them walk down the hill, heads held high, because today they had made war on behalf of the capital, brought justice to a lawless family, and ended an unapproved house war. They'd fought hard, striking so fast and so efficiently that only a few hundred of their warrior escorts, and not a single member of the order, had died in the battle. Tonight they would celebrate, unaware that this process would never end. Ah, the hero of the day has decided to keep his old teacher company. Mandarin stopped next to Ashok and gestured at the fire. It is quite the sight, is it not? We taught a valuable lesson today, one that the great houses will not soon forget. They will tremble at the idea of violating the law, and it is all thanks to you. It was nothing. On the contrary, Asho, your legend grows with every mission. Our obligations have increased tenfold since you joined us. Mindarin looked around. Where is your brother? Devadas took a spear thrust through the stomach and will need time to recover. The last time Ashok had seen him, he'd been in the healer's tent, vomiting up coagulated blood. He should be ready to travel in a few days. That's what he gets for trying to keep up with you, lad. I saw you fling yourself into the lines. Impressive work. I'm thankful every day that your house obligated you to our order. If we hadn't had you and that sword today, I have no doubt some of my boys would be on that fire. I was only doing my duty, the same as everyone else. You are too humble. I had a teacher who said that all great swordsmen need humility because humility leads to awareness, and awareness leads to victory. Don't use my own words against me. You may not seek praise, so I should know by now not to waste my time giving you any, but we both know your value to the order, the old master said. When I was your age, the order was a shadow of what it is today. We were fading, shrinking. You made us important again, effective and vital. You are a weapon, Ashok, a tool of justice. Your very existence has become a warning to all that they must comply with the law. Your reputation is worth more than a legion of inquisitors. Ashok nodded. After the way today's conflict ended, it would be a long time before any other great houses grew so ambitious. All must know their place. Mindaran smiled. It was usually him quoting the law, not the other way around. Adherence to the law is the only thing that keeps the world from descending into madness. It was the law which lifted man out of superstitious barbarity and brought us into an age of reason. Yet the law is always vulnerable. The law is a dam, and on the other side is an ocean of chaos. If a chip isn't repaired the dam will crack. Today we simply plugged a leak. The only thing he'd seen leaking today had been blood from thousands of bodies. I'm not one of the newly obligated children, Mindarin. Spare me the allegories. I do what I must, that's all. My dam example is a metaphor, not an allegory. Sometimes, though, it is good to repeat the lessons learned in our youth. It helps us keep our minds focused the same way a whetstone keeps an edge on our steel. You truly can't help yourself, can you? Mindarin chuckled. 
Only some of us carry swords that never need to be sharpened. He looked pointedly at Sheathed and Gruvedal. Tell me, fifteen-year senior, how many men did you strike down today? Regulations required him to be as exact as possible in his reports, so he trained himself to remember every blow, every cut, every face. Twenty-six violators killed and thirty-four injured during the battle itself. I estimate half of those may survive their injuries. After House Macau surrendered, I executed another five specific officers as per the judge's sentence for fomenting rebellion, as well as their wives and their firstborn sons. That is a terrible burden. It was just another day. The two of them watched the great bonfire in silence for a time. What troubles you, Ashok? Absolutely nothing. He answered truthfully. The old master thought that over before speaking. He was no longer using his instructor's voice, but rather sounded like any other tired old man. The acolyte's answers were acceptable, but wrong. We know there's nothing beyond life. The fire doesn't go somewhere else when the candle is extinguished. We are meat with a spark of life inside nothing more. Yet still, something compels us to treat a corpse with the dignity we'd reserve for a whole man. They are wrong because the law doesn't command us to respect the dead, but rather the law allows us to do something we would be compelled to do regardless, something ingrained into us since ancient times. We honor the dead, so the survivors remember to live. Ashok had never been one for Mindaran's philosophical contemplations. If you say so, with all the weight we have put upon you, don't forget how to live, Ashok. At times I fear our people have forgotten too much as it is. The master's words verged on the subversive, but thankfully he did not continue with that thought. Forgive an old man his ramblings. Ashok nodded after the young protectors. They had taken up one of Ratul's marching chants on their way back to the camp. Was I ever that idealistic? Was. Mindaran put one hand on his shoulder. Lad, you still are. Chapter 4 You know, Ashok, I've seen you fill a lot of graves over the years. But I do believe this is the first time I've ever seen you dig one. Ashok glanced up and saw a familiar, scarred face. He'd been too focused on his labor to notice the other protector sitting on the rocks above. His old friend could be quiet as a demon when he felt like it. Hello, Davidas. Ashok had barely finished pushing the last of the dirt into the hole and stomping it down. It was said that the jungle scavengers were very persistent here, so he'd dug the hole deep. What brings you to this muggy hell? Looking for you, among other things. Who's in the hole? Someone who didn't deserve to be eaten by crabs. We don't dig graves where I come from. The ground's always frozen. Why are you digging anyway? Doesn't this province have any slaves? I felt like digging. That's not illegal. How long have you been sitting there? Long enough to be glad I wasn't born in the worker caste. Can you imagine toiling under this miserable sun every day? Ashok stuck the shovel in the dirt so it would stand upright. Do you think digging endless holes would be so much worse than endless fighting? Spoken like a man who has nearly completed his house's obligation. Twenty years is a lot of service for the order to wring out of one man. That was meant to goad him. Devadas had been doing this a bit longer than he had. No wonder you're curious to see how the other castes live. There were two demons. Ashok gestured toward where the alchemists and wizards were butchering the demon carcasses further down the beach. Big ones, too. If they're getting into the habit of working in pairs, then I look forward to my retirement. Two. 
Nevertheless tried not to let his concern show, but he failed. I didn't say digging holes would be worse than what we do, but it would be terribly dull. Devadas slid down the rock, hopped the last six feet, and landed effortlessly next to him. Good to see you, brother. The men obligated to the order were sons from each of the great houses, and they all brought some traditions with them. It was one of the small, allowable ways each protector could maintain some of their history. Devadas was a southerner, so he preferred to shake hands rather than bow in greeting. It was probably because in the cold lands you had to wear such a pile of furs to live that nobody could tell if you were bowing or not. Or, as Devadas liked to joke, southerners didn't like to look down because that's when the bears ate you. Devadas's grip was as firm as his own. If I'd known you were in Gujara, I would have sent for you. I could have used the help last night. I'm not too proud to admit that I only survived by luck. I'll say you did. Two? I hope this doesn't mean the ocean is acting up again. Devadas scanned the surf, but the waters were normal, unclean blue. Not the agitated red that often warned of a larger raid. It had been two full seasons since the last time their duties had put them in the same province at the same time, but they'd both grown up in the brutal confines of the Order's program. They'd survived the harshest training in the world together and fought at each other's side so many times that it was like no time had passed at all. They didn't look alike at all, with Ashok being taller and darker in both temperament and features, but they had often been mistaken for real brothers of the same house. They might not have had the same father, but they had the same swordmaster. And to a protector, that was nearly the same thing. A pair is an anomaly, but it's not unheard of. Looking at your face, those demons must have beaten you like a practice dummy. It was the sort of blunt assessment that could only come from an equal in station. An inferior would not have been so honest, and a superior probably wouldn't have cared. You look awful. And that was with having most of the morning to allow the heart to help him recover. It took a long time to dig a hole when one arm was so battered that the elbow didn't want to bend. It was a good fight. You're not usually one to put comfort over presentation, these Gujarans are going to think the order's gone sloppy. Why are you out of uniform? All of them were hard as nails, but Devadas was the southerner, and he'd still arrived in this awful, sweltering, chafing jungle, dressed in the full regalia and armor of the order. Where's your armor? Ashok pointed toward the pile of steel and leather resting in the shade. His ancestor blade was sheathed and lying across the top of his damaged armor. Devadas's eyes lingered on the mighty sword just a moment too long. I still can't believe you just put that sword on the ground like that, Devadas said incredulously. Sometimes you need to. It isn't welded to my hand. But still, what if someone tries to pick it up? They'd immediately regret it, and Gruvadal is easily displeased. If I possessed such a thing... I would never put it down. It seems disrespectful. But practical. If it feels dishonored, it'll abandon me. I'll die in battle, and then it will pick a new bearer. I didn't choose Angruvadal. It chose me. Ashok explained for the thousandth time. Devadas might have been jealous of the sword's power, but Ashok was the only one who understood the particular burden that came from bearing an ancestor blade. It's mighty, but it is still only a sword, Devadas. Religion is false and illegal, so don't start worshipping it. Coveting a holy relic is a serious offense, Devadas snorted. I'd have to arrest myself. Sorry. He knew exactly what Devadas was thinking about, and experience had taught him it was best to change to a lighter subject before his brother fell into one of his dark moods. I don't know how whole men live in this place. I was dying inside my armor. Remember Pratosh from the program? 
The kid with the lazy eye. He was obligated to the order by House Gujara. He grew up in this very jungle. I remember he used to say that you got used to the heat. Now I know why he never liked to wear a proper amount of clothes. And also why he was always complaining about how cold the barracks were. Devadas chuckled. Not that the acolytes' barracks hadn't been miserably cold, but complaining only made the other acolytes meaner. Whatever happened to him anyway? Dead. Ashok had to stop and think about it for a moment. Protectors died so often, usually alone, and in the most forsaken corners of the world, that sometimes it was hard to keep every story straight. He finally made senior at eight years, went to Zaga to stop an uprising, and ended up getting his throat slit on the way by desert raiders. Well, at least he died where it was warm. But considering it was Pratosh, his last words were probably complaining that it was a dry heat. He was a good man. More than I can say for most of us. Hold on. Devidus glanced around. I've been running since dawn. Nobody spotted me, so I wasn't even properly announced. What does a man have to do to get food in this swinehold? Forgive the inhospitality. In their defense, half the place burned down last night. That's no excuse for incivility. Devida spotted a worker carrying a wrapped bundle of demon parts to a nearby wagon and shouted at him. You there! I am Devadas, protector of the law, 22-year senior. He added that last part for Ashok's benefit, because no one outside of the order gave a damn about their relative experience or the fact that Devadas technically outranked him. In this backwater province, either of them was of far higher status than just about anyone they were likely to run into. Fetch us some wine and something to eat. The wine had better be good. None of that water down swill. The worker dropped the heavy package in the wagon, then ran off as if the demons had returned. He didn't know Devadas. A demon was less dangerous. You shouldn't have announced yourself. Now the local warriors will descend on you with great ceremony and ass-kissing. Devadas sat on the grass in the shade of a big tree. I don't know about ass-kissing but I could certainly use a foot rub. It's a long run from the great house to here. What do Gujaran pleasure women look like? I don't know. I've been too busy following a demon raider up and down the coast for the last few weeks to request any. Ashok sat next to Devadas. The ache of his stiff muscles warned him that if he stayed still too long, he would have a hard time getting back up. But it beat being dead. So, why were you looking for me? I was sent here because the Inquisition requested a protector in Gorjat. It's a stinkhole of a city a few days from here. Smugglers found some old temple to the Forgotten out in the jungle and have been digging up artifacts to sell to wizards without papers. I'm to execute them all. Do you need help? Devadas shook his head. There's only supposed to be twenty of them. Worker caste, so they won't know how to fight. And they've got no useful magic to speak of. The only reason they requested a protector is politics. Some Thakur's firstborn has been taking bribes. And you can't have the locals disgracing each other and starting blood feuds when an outsider is more convenient. If one of us lops off his head, nobody will say a word. We're impartial like that. If you hadn't been busy chasing demons, they probably wouldn't have sent me. Anyways, I encountered a herald on the road to Gorjat. He saw my uniform and thought I was you. The man must have been half blind to mistake Devadas the Magnificent for some glorified northern cowherder with a magic sword. I swear you're not going to be happy until I agree to duel you again, will you? Someday I'll get my rematch, Devadas said as he traced his thumb down the white scar that ran from his right eye to his chin. Even a protector couldn't fully heal from a wound inflicted by the black steel of an ancestor blade. I still feel bad about the scar. 
No, you don't. And even with it, I'm still far better looking than you are. Regardless, I said I would deliver his message personally. Devadas opened a pouch on his belt and pulled out a folded piece of paper. It gave me an excuse to visit. Sure enough, Ashok's name was on it, though the humidity had caused the ink to bleed. Ashok took the letter. It bore the seal of the order and had come all the way from the capital, but he didn't break the wax. What are you waiting for? The letter probably contained his next assignment. In a moment. Ah, the great Ashok and his legendary sense of commitment. You can't read it yet because the moment you do, you'll be obligated to leap up and rush off to wherever the order requires you next. The fiercest beasts, the harshest duties, the worst violators all fall before the unflinching judgment of black-hearted Ashok. You make the rest of us look lazy. You don't need my help for that. Devidus laughed. I know you better than anyone. You've reached your twenty. You can leave the order whenever you want and return to your house with honor. Vidal women are gorgeous, and no doubt they'll pick the best-looking one to be your wife. Retire, and that woman can start providing you with sons. Come on, man. You just defeated a pair of demons at the same time. That's the stuff of legends. When was the last time one of us did that? Cantalin Vokan, 28-year master in the year 540. Ashok said absently. Of course, you'd remember the history lessons. You know how rare it is for a protector to actually retire. Your house will name you to Thakur for sure. They've probably already built a castle for you. Neighboring houses will cower at the mention of your name. Ashok just shook his head. You've served your obligation, but you're still here. That's because I'm far better at dispensing justice than you are. I'll do this until I die. Devadas grinned. Besides, what do I have to go back to? He believed the real reason was because Devadas wanted to be the next master. But it would have been impolite to suggest such a thing. The law declared its protectors were not allowed to have personal ambition. Ambition got in the way of following orders. Ashok tried to change the subject. So, do you have any news of the civilized world? By civilized, you mean your house? Ashok had only been a small child when he'd been obligated, and protectors were never dispatched to deal with lawbreakers in their own house so as to prevent bias. So it had been a long time since he'd been to his ancestral lands. I barely remember it at all. The sword probably remembers more about Vidal than I do. Ah, mighty Vidal, jewel of the houses. I was there last season when House Volcan got uppity and tested your western borders. You didn't miss much. There was a rout. Your Aunt Bidea still rules. Your cousin Harter is said to be the finest orator in the capital and has the judges dancing like puppets on a string. The women are pretty. The sun shines every day. Crops grow year-round, and everyone is fat and happy, awaiting the return of their legendary son so he can bring home the family sword. What else do you want to know? Open the damned letter. What of your house? Devaculize snow, volcanoes, and walruses. Devadas grew somber. Seriously, Ashok, open the letter, or I'll do it for you. Master Mandarin has been ill. Ill? Protectors didn't get sick unless... Why didn't you tell me? Ashok snapped as he broke the seal. I only just heard myself from the messenger. Ashok read in silence. A cold feeling settled in his guts. And? I'm to return to the capital immediately and present myself before the master. Ignoring the protests of his sore muscles, Ashok got up and went to his belongings. Did it say why? Devadas asked suspiciously. No. He put the sword belt around his waist and cinched it tight. In this heat, fifty pounds of armor would travel faster in a pack on his back than on his body. He'd make much better time that way. 
It was about a hundred miles to get out of the jungle and to the Gujaran's next real town. On foot, through this terrain, if he called on the heart of the mountain and pushed himself to exhaustion, he could be there tomorrow afternoon. If they didn't gift him with a team of swift horses there, he'd confiscate some. Riding them nearly to death and switching mounts at every settlement along the interior this time of year with dry roads, he could be at the capital in less than three weeks. I recognize that face. As is said, when duty calls, Ashok does not hesitate. Devadas didn't seem inclined to get off the grass or leave the shade. Mandaran is dying, isn't he? This letter was written a month ago. He may already be dead. Ashok saw that the worker Devadas had yelled at earlier was returning with a wineskin and a basket of food. He snatched the skin from the red-faced and gasping inferior and took a long drink. The wine tasted almost as brackish as the water here. Then he tossed it over. Devadas caught the skin, took a drink, and then spit it out with a grimace. This is the good stuff. Ashok took a few rice balls out of the basket and then snapped at the worker. I require a traveling pack, a few days' rations, and one of those silks to keep out bugs and snakes while you sleep. What are you waiting for? Move! Ashok kicked the man in the leg for emphasis. He immediately dropped the basket and ran for his life. The inferiors were odd here. The castlers took up spears, the warriors didn't want to fight demons, and the workers were high-strung. Ashok hadn't even kicked him hard. If Mindarin is on his deathbed, and he sent for you, Devadas left that thought hanging. I'm sure it's for something else. There can only be one reason they'd call you back to the capital now. Ashok shoved a rice ball into his mouth and began chewing as he gathered his belongings. If his mouth was full, he wouldn't have to answer. He knew Devadas had dreams of leading the order. Ashok simply wanted to fulfill his responsibilities to the law, nothing more. I receive no summons. They're going to promote you to his office rather than me. Devadas was silent for a long time. Then he gave a bitter laugh. Of course, a son of the finest of the great houses, who has a home to return to and a sword that destines him to rule it. Why not give him one more honor? What's a promotion to a man like that? But for a man who has sacrificed just as much in service to the law, who has no house to return to and no future except for servitude, who could use such a title to rebuild his family name? To a man to whom such an honor would mean everything, it is not granted. Ashok choked down the too dry rice and regretted tossing aside the wine. It's not a contest. Of course not. There can be no contest with Ashok the Fearless. Devadas raised his voice. Because when you fight Ashok, all of his ancestors fight with him. I've done just as much as you have for the order. Only I've done it with the strength of my own arm, not that of the fifty generations who came before. He didn't like when Devadas fell into one of his moods. We all have a place in the law. Accept yours, Devadas. There's comfort in that. That's easy for you to say. I don't know why I've been summoned. But if it's to take Mindarin's place, so be it. I don't want his authority. You know I never have. However, I'll do whatever I'm commanded, and I'll ask for nothing in return. Your obnoxious inability to lie annoys me to no end. Devadas sighed as he stood up. But it also makes it impossible to hate you. Several warriors were hurrying their way, and one of them was carrying a large marching pack. It was still dark with sweat from the soldier it had been confiscated from. I must go. He looked at his brother, and as was the custom in Vidal lands, gave a deep, respectful bow. Devadas returned the gesture. When he lifted his head, Ashok said, Believe me, Devadas, if it were up to me, I'd much rather they picked you. I know. So who's in the grave, Ashok? I buried a castless. Did you kill him? 
He killed himself through disobedience. What an odd thing to waste your time with. Devadas kicked at the freshly turned dirt. Why would you do that? Ashok didn't actually know the answer. Farewell, Devadas. Until we meet again, brother. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judd Quist. And a Mobius strip attached to a Tesla coil powered by a wistful tune played softly on a theremin. Plus thanks, praise, and plaudits for Tim Powers, author of Alternate Routes. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 